This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We hear a lot about technology and artificial intelligence these days. We are talking about NatSec and mercantilist conflicts over TikTok and WeChat and Huawei and Russian social media election disinformation. A decade ago, we were awash in techno-utopianism. But today, the discourse is decidedly dystopian. We hear about how social media is spreading disinformation, how online platforms facilitate the exploitation of gig workers, and how algorithms perpetuate discrimination and bias. All of that is true, but what's often missing in the critiques is a deep knowledge of the tech world combined with attention to the underlying political economy. Few people understand these intersecting issues better than Meredith Whitaker, who worked at Google for 13 years before resigning in July 2019 after helping to organize a mass walkout. For years, she has been helping to spearhead critical research into the economic and social consequences of digital technology, while also participating in the tech worker organizing movement. Do yourself a favor and skip the social dilemma you will be better off listening to this interview, which was conducted not by me, but by my guest host, Astra Taylor. Before we get the show moving, I wanted to pause briefly to remind you that this episode that you are listening to right now was made and distributed into your earbuds because your fellow listeners support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. If you already support us, thank you. We make this podcast free to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, because those of you listeners who can afford to support The Dig do so by making a monthly contribution. So if you haven't contributed yet, and you are a fan of the show, and you've been meaning to contribute, please just hit pause for a quick moment now, Navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. One note, this pandemic sometimes makes technical matters a little more complicated than normal and the audio quality isn't quite as good as usual, but it's totally fine and intelligible and the interview is 
spectacular. Okay, here we go. Here's Astra Taylor interviewing Meredith Whitaker. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Most recently, she directed the film What is Democracy? and contributed to the foreword to The Debt Collective's new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Meredith Whitaker is a research professor at New York University and the co-founder of the AI Now Institute at NYU. Her work focuses on the social implications of artificial intelligence and the tech industry responsible for it. As a longtime tech worker, she helped lead labor organizing efforts at Google, driven by the belief that worker power and collective action are necessary to ensure meaningful tech accountability and a livable world. Meredith Whitaker, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So I want to begin by inviting you to talk about your personal background. I think your background's so interesting and so important because you have so much authority to speak on tech issues and you came to tech uh, via a very interesting route, initially studying rhetoric at, at University of California, Berkeley. I think you told me once that you studied with Judith Butler. Um and wound up in the belly of the beast at Google and have become, in my opinion, and many other people's opinions, one of the most insightful critics of technology today. And also one of the most important activists, somebody who's really active in the the surge of tech worker organizing that we're seeing, which I think is one of the bright spots of the last couple of years. So yeah, just please take the floor and tell us a bit about yourself, where you come from and the Institute the AI Now Institute that you run. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And I'm thinking back, Astra, to a couple years ago when you and I were somewhere near NYU having a beer and the James Damore memo, which was this virulently misogynist and racist screed from a Google engineer had just dropped. And I was despairing about the idea of politicizing tech at all. And you were encouraging me to engage in organizing. How do we organize these people? And I just, I had no hope for it. So let's say my, my path through tech has been kind of winding and I am, I am equally gratified and surprised by the surge of, of labor activity and the willingness to dissent that we've seen in the sector over the last couple of, or, or, or last year and a half or so. Yeah. So I, I mean, my background's absolutely right. I went to Berkeley. I studied rhetoric and English literature, and I, I took a class with Judith Butler, but studied with her sounds a little grand, given that I was still struggling to get through Derrida and had a lot, you know, very little idea of what a lot of that was talking about at that point in my life. And I think it's, you know, I came from a working class background, you know, kind of chaotic hippies, and college wasn't something that we necessarily did. I realized college was easier than retail work, which is what I was doing as a as a child. And I went to college and then it was very clear to me in the sort of narrative I, w- I was living at that point, grad school was for rich people. And you definitely can't take out loans because that's a bad investment. Uh, and you needed a job. So I had a couple hundred dollars in my bank account and I was putting my resume on Monster, which is old school LinkedIn and interviewing for anything. Like I was interviewing for a wire service. I was interviewing for a weird health tech startup. I was interviewing for I, I don't remember just any random job that was appearing in in a Craigslist or a job site on campus or something. And uh, and Google found my resume on Monster. That's the job 
job I ended up getting. And this was in 2006. So I, I kind of entered tech because it paid the most and because it was willing to hire me, right? I had no affinity for technology. I had no, you know, I still don't really have an affinity for technology, although I've always been interested in power. And I joined Google at a point when it was, it was much smaller, but it was also, it was much more arrogant, right? They hadn't lost. They were convinced that they had had the formula for being ethical billionaires, right? And there was, you know, something so strange about that environment, free juice in the lobby and just a bunch of men. And they were all kind of convinced of the righteousness of this mission and of the ability of doing good while doing well. So that was, that was sort of how I dropped into that space. And, and quickly, I, you know, I don't think I understood a lot of what I was reading in my rhetoric education or in, in the sort of critical engagement with, you know, quasi left politics until I started sort of pushing at Google and beginning to recognize the way institutional power worked within the company and through the technology that the company was producing. And, you know, the story of my tenure there is, you know, I, I ended up founding a research group. We worked on issues of measurement. I learned a lot of what I know about tech by asking questions and kind of figuring it out, doing it, you know, being allowed to do that all day. So you do you know, garner kind of skills around that. And I ended up being particularly concerned with artificial intelligence or what was being marketed as artificial intelligence, because I happened to be in a very privileged position inside the company to be seeing the, you know, widening disparity between the claims that were being made on, you know, the cover of Wired or, you know, in, in the, the sort of public discourse and the capabilities of these technologies. So I was, you know, by the, by the last quarter of my over a decade long career at Google, I was known pretty prominently within the company and certainly outside as sort of a dissenting voice, right? It's, you know, people would say, it's cool that Google lets you do this, right? And I think fairly naively, I kind of believed that that was, you know, critique was a, a, a mode to redress, right? It was a mode of change. I, you know, I, I worked hard on my arguments. I was, you know, I was convinced that I was right. I was right most of the time. Um, and, and I was still kind of stuck in this pattern where I was effectively a kind of a tokenized dissenter, right? I didn't have power. I wasn't actually kind of in the rooms where these decisions were being made ultimately, but I was creating the illusion of a arousing debate, right? Where all sides were listened to. And it just happens that the old men then go in the room and make the decision after, after the hearing. Um, and, and it was, you know, that experience and, you know, combined with kind of a deep understanding of the way that tech as a socio-technical ecosystem worked, right? I'd been inside that company. I came up, I spent my youth inside that company that I think led me to organizing and led me to recognize, you know, this is not, dissent is just words without power and we need to begin figuring out how we can build the power to actually contest some of these increasingly frightening and increasingly ubiquitous technologies that are being sold by Google. I want to dig in a little bit more there because, I mean, that is, I think, part of what's so powerful about the role you're playing is you have an intensely credible critique with a relentless attention to the power dynamics and the need for, uh, you know, sustained and militant forms of of pressure. So, you know, whether that's strikes or, you know, open letters, all, the, all of these various forms of dissent that you've engaged in. But, you know, I just want to underscore that while you were at Google, you did climb the ladder. I mean, yes, you began by them sort of scouting your resume on Monster, but you ended up running or even founding, I believe, the Open Research Group. And, and I want you to dig into that sense where you, you know, for a while you were allowed to kind of critique from the inside, right? And then you push that to its limits instead of staying within the bounds. And so tell that story and, and where you went afterwards. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I joined Google as a contractor doing what was effectively customer support work. Um, that's not what I understood I was going to be doing because the title of the job was opaque as as they often are, but that was effectively what I did. And I think I joined with a lack of familiarity with the way that sort of elite capital institutions work, sort of coming from my background, where I was naive enough not to realize that a lot of the checks weren't actually written to me. So, you know, I tried to cash them. <laughs> and you know, one of those was that, you know, you that at Google, if you see an opportunity, if you make an opportunity, you can you can sort of do that work, right? There was a lot of encouragement to innovate, to have 20% projects, to you know spend some of your time tinkering with an idea that may just go somewhere. And of course, that was targeted to engineers whose intellectual property they owned, who would then you know go on to potentially create a product that made them a lot of money, right? And there were examples of these. Um, but I, you know, of course, I didn't recognize that. So there was there were a number of moves I made early in my career, like riding a bike around the campus to VP's office hours asking for a new job, right? And that ended up landing me a job doing standards. And then I did standards for a long time and got really interested in the way that power and control are enacted through the process of standardization and data construction. And that that's sort of where I, I dug in. But that, you know, that led to kind of questions, right? Sort of, you know, significant questions that need to be answered and, and research and infrastructure that could be done to be answering those questions. Um, and I worked for a long time sort of running a project that I co-founded called Measurement Lab that now provides the largest source of open data on internet performance. And of course, that's that sounds a little bit boring, but it's like a highly charged, highly politicized uh, or political politicized form of evidence because it gets right down to how internet policy is set. And a particularly maybe a decade ago, this was critically important because we were having the net neutrality debates, right? Is carriage free for content from a Google, right? Whose responsibility is it to fund these infrastructures? Um, and it was pitting the ISPs, the Comcast, the Verizon, et cetera, against the content providers, so-called the Googles and, and the Facebook and what have you. And so it, it got right into heart of these questions of who owns knowledge, who gets to decide how something like internet performance is measured. Um, and it was kind of a perfect you know, it was it was a, an interesting project because we were doing everything from sort of like running infrastructure to running game at the FCC and sort of arguing for this. And it, and it really gave a you know, it was a it was a cross section of how these sort of techno political efforts often work. But it was also a great example of the way that the neutrality of data and the idea that science is objective were just on a day to day basis fundamentally contested in the way that these projects were under uh, kind of um, in the way that we were running these projects. So, you know, you would do something like change the kernel implementation on a server, right? And that would change the data that you were collecting, right? It would fundamentally reshape what you were collecting. And then that data would have a significantly different meaning when you analyzed it, when you presented it, say, to an FCC commissioner arguing, you know, for your point, right? So I was I was involved at a lot of those levels and involved at the sort of messiness of all of this and the the great expense that's often hidden in these projects. And I think that was that was the experience that allowed me to fine tune my politics within the context of the tech industry and begin to understand the way that these, you know, that technology was interfacing with politics and power. And it also led me to a deep concern with artificial intelligence, which I mentioned earlier. And that, you know, that was really driven by my intimate understanding of the data creation process and that constructing data was it wasn't an arbitrary choice necessarily, but it was certainly political and data was more a reflection of what I wanted to know than a natural imprint that was left by the thing I might be interrogating, right? And then when I was 
you know, I was watching AI become the new fad about 10 years ago or so. And I was concerned because AI is this practice of just hoovering up vast amounts of data, almost certainly uncritically, right? Like they don't train AI engineers to question the data. That's sort of a given, right? It's that, you know, there's, that's not their lane. Just take that data, create representations of the world, whatever that subsection might be based on that data, and then sell that as, you know, some kind of intelligent engine that is able to make claims and predictions and determinations based on that. So, you know, the way in which that was, you know, my, my concern about AI came through this um, understanding of, of how messy and political and uh, contingent measurement and data construction are. To go back to that, that moment at the bar and the despair, the memo that you referred to kind of put on display for the world how unobjective certain employees of Google were, right? Um, and, and the biases that were lurking, not just in that one company, but in Silicon Valley more broadly and in the world more broadly. But maybe speak about, about that and, and, the, and the walkout, and then we'll dig into some of the bigger political conceptual issues. Yeah. So the Demore memo, was, it was a low point at the company, at least morale-wise for me and a number of my comrades. Uh, this was a, a software engineer named Jem, James Demore. It seems pretty clear to me now looking at the way events unfolded that this was a bit of a setup, right? He had media prepared. He was ready for the implications of what happened and took full advantage to become a sort of B-list reactionary YouTube star. But he wrote a memo that essentially claimed that women were biologically less adept at math and engineering, right? So it was it was justifying misogynist hiring and promotion practices, misogyny within STEM. And it was it was written in in a tone we may now be more familiar with, which is the sort of snide, kind of fake objective tone of people who use facts and logic to make uh, racist, sexist, ableist claims. But it, it circulated throughout the company. And because the company's communication infrastructure sort of allowed for a lot of mailing list debates and, and was a little bit raucous to begin with, you know, what it did was not just highlight that there was a shitty, backwards, misinformed engineer in our midst, which is not that surprising if you've been in tech, but it was also kind of an acid test that began to expose how many others agreed with him, how many others were willing to defend or excuse or even credence some of those arguments. And it was you know, obviously a very difficult time to be somebody who's not, you know, a self-righteous white man in that company. And then it was, it was also difficult because the company's response was slow because a number of my trans colleagues in particular were doxxed and harassed and faced significant backlash, right-wing reactionary fascist contingents outside the company because this, this leaked. And then it, it, you know, it became something that it was actually putting people in danger and making a number of the rest of us feel extraordinarily fearful. Uh, so it was, it was a moment where it was very clear that the specter of this type of right-wing uh, reactionary young white male Kind of gamergate mentality was coming from inside the house and that we weren't you know protected or defended there was not a a robust response although he was eventually fired there was not a robust response from the company and it was all you know it was very clear a room full of lawyers were nervously writing wet you know kind of hedge words for the executive to say but that the real import that kind of um behavior was not being felt by by them and, and that there wasn't much concerns or it, it was an incident that exposed how pervasive a culture that many of us had experienced but hadn't seen 
laid out in front of us in its full expansiveness. Um, like, so that day, you know, it seemed that, as you said, it was this acid test. So suddenly you're seeing people come out of the woodwork, either explicitly or implicitly. But a lot of people also were galvanized in reaction. And, you know, in that sense, it was a pivotal moment of seeing, hey, there's actually a lot of people who haven't lost touch with their humanity working here, too. Yeah. And there was there was organizing in response to that. There was an open letter. There were uh, entreaties and petitions to executives. There were people who I believe this is the first time that folks recognize that the NLR, the National Labor Relations Act and the protections for workers therein uh, allowed us to speak publicly about workplace conditions. Um, there is a, you know, there is a culture of demonizing leakers and sort of a, a culture that mirrors sort of um, nuclear family structures of control that's, you know, sort of don't air the dirty laundry. We can talk in, inside, but not outside. And and for a long time, the idea of, you know, a leaker was sort of just a uh, just a bit above a murderer in terms of the kind of hierarchy of scoundrels within Google. And I think this was the Demore memos when people began to sort of break those norms and question those assumptions. Uh, And it did it along with a lot of other organizing, a lot of other struggles laid the groundwork for the walkout, which happened a couple years later, although time has sort of collapsed for me in this COVID bubble. So pardon me if I'm I'm getting it a little bit wrong there. And that you helped organize, you helped organize the the walkout that was much larger yeah. than I think anyone expected, at least from the outside. I don't know how you felt as a as an instigator. Yeah, it was it was a moment that, you know, there's no recipe for it. Uh, the walkout was in response to, you know, what, one more sign that proved just how deeply encoded misogyny was within these companies, how how clear it was who was allowed to win and who was seen as disposable. This was the $90 million sexual harassment bonus, as we called it, to Andy Rubin, who was an executive who sort of ran the Android branch of Google. And that payout to him was was revealed by the New York Times. And it catalyzed a lot of storytelling among people. It became clear that this was, you know, Andy's behavior was pretty well known in the Whisper Network. I certainly knew you know, not to work with him um, before that came out. And, you know, but it, but it also catalyzed a number of people to begin telling their stories about how, you know, they were harassed and or abused or mistreated or passed over for promotion or treated with you know racist contempt. All of these things began sort of spilling out more prominently. And my dear friend, Claire Stapleton, who had been at Google for a very long time at that point as well, floated the idea of a walkout. And I think this was Friday evening on a mom's list. And over the weekend, I started talking with some folks about it. It was organized for the following Thursday. And I had been organizing before then and was pretty committed to that uh, militant labor organizing in tech as, as one of the levers that had already worked to, you know, cancel some contracts to push back on some really bad decisions. And so my hope on that Monday going into it was that we'd have a couple hundred people out there, we'd get some media and it would begin to sort of build this muscle, right? That we, you know, we can actually take action with our bodies. We can do things other than debate or sign petitions, right? We could take the organizing into a more embodied collective form. And then Thursday rolled around and we had 20,000 people across the globe participating in what amounts to a strike that you know, cost the company hundreds of millions of dollars. So it, I'm really happy about that. And I think it's, you know, it shows that this, these sort of latent potentialities are are there. Um, and it's hard to predict the conditions that will will allow them to uh, flourish. 
I mean, it's so impressive, right? It also shows that, you know, how much power you have to wield when you're attacking a company with a bottom line of, I have no idea what is Google's revenue um, in the hundreds of billions or something, the damage you have to inflict. But, you know, one thing that stands in the way of dealing with tech power is the mythology that they've built around themselves. And so I want to maybe begin there. What do we need to demolish so that we can see this field more clearly? There was a real strong strain of techno-utopianism not that long ago. I mean, I would say it almost dominated until 2016 when when Trump won. You know, I wrote a book railing against it that came out in 2014. And yet, you know, the the sense of an ease we have around tech now is kind of incoherent. So we have right-wingers railing against tech platforms for censorship. We have liberals who are critical of social media because of polarization or Russian interference or disinformation. And so I, I want you to reflect on you know, what you think are some of the pernicious or misleading myths or ideas about technology. So things that we need to get rid of. You know, I'm thinking about one you know, the idea, right, that all, all it takes to succeed in tech is a good idea that you can do in your garage, right? When the political economy of tech is way more complicated, um, it, you know, the two guys in the garage is almost like the myth of the yeoman farmer for the tech world uh, and totally <laughs> belies, you know, the, the level of state investment and the massive fortunes that are operating and the structures of, you know, venture capital, all of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that those two boys needed a check with a lot of zeros to do anything with that idea. Yeah, you you picked one of my favorite slash least favorite self-serving Silicon Valley myths. And I think it's it's one of those myths that really that, that what we see around us, these networked computational devices and services and products are a product of pure innovation that what happened was that you know sometime in maybe the 70s the 80s you know whenever you want to date this this myth you know guys just started having ideas and then you know here we are we have Moore's law we have innovative products and services and and this actually reflects a kind of meritocratic view of scientific progress right it's what we have is the best because the best ideas from all these these millions of garages those are the only ones that won out right and that in fact, what we are seeing is the 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 product of progress. And I think, um, you know, I think one, that's just not true. What we're seeing is the product of what is profitable for a number of multinational corporations. And there are many other ways we could have done things. Um, we are also, you know, I think with this myth, seeing, seeing a version of tech that is sort of dematerialized, right? It's just ideas that you have in a garage. It's sort of ephemeral mass. Um, it's not hundreds of millions of dollars in computational infrastructure or the requirement that you have, you know, significant and powerful venture capital backing or the, you know, the labor that went into all of the devices and the chips and, you know, the data labeling, which we'll talk about a little later, um, you know, all of that is sort of erased. And it's just a, a man with an idea who gets to be, again, this sort of yeoman hero of a, a structure that preexisted him and is, in fact, um, very much contingent on the incentives of capital. You know, it's very also very much dependent on a lot of public infrastructures that many others have talked about, right, these sort of investments that went into networked computational infrastructures, the NSF net, all of these other affordances on which this was built. So I think it's, you know, I think we we certainly need to decenter that. And we also need to sort of decenter the idea that, you know, tech is too complicated, too smart for us mortals to approach, right? That it's it's something that, you know, we really don't want to look stupid. So we might as well shut our mouths, right? And I think this is a 
I don't know, this is a dynamic, this is a story that has allowed only people with elite technical training, which is, of course, very gendered and very racialized, to have standing to discuss the ways that these products, these services, these infrastructures are shaping a vast array of variegated social and political domains that, frankly, these people have no idea about, right? But I think you can look, you know, you can look to congressional hearings for the last decades, right? And you see, you know, as as bad as they are, as boughten as they are, you still still see this sense of sort of um, simpering apologies from you know Congress people, like I don't know about tech, but ah, it's okay if I ask about this, right? You see that in journalism as well, where you know I think a lot of the these sort of male tech journalism of the last couple of decades just uncritically accepted these claims, right? For a number of reasons, including not wanting to appear stupid to their sources, not wanting to appear non-technical. Um, and I think we need to really kind of dig into how that story is constructed, how tech was constructed as white, as male. And I would I would point to the work of historian Mar Hicks on that. I would point to the work of historian Joy Lisi Rankin, who really unpacked some of these myths and how how the, the composition of Silicon Valley and, and who has power actually isn't a given, right? That there are many forms of a technology industry that included many other people. And it was, you know, in my observation and experience and, and as documented in some of this work, it was really when tech became sort of a, a center of wealth and power that the demographics changed, um, not the other way around. Right. And so uh, I, I, Feminist uh, critics and historians have done so much work on this, right? Even the first computer coders were women. (laughs) They got kicked out of those jobs. I mean, and to that point, you know, I think, you know, talk about how the the fixation on either the the engineer, right, or the founder, the startup founder, or even the sort of venture capitalist who has an eye for the next Mark Zuckerberg erases the fact that there's a lot of people working on these projects, right? There's a lot of regular, old, boring labor that goes into them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, starting with just the people who have to maintain the projects after the idea has been baked, because of course, these projects don't exist in a vacuum. Say I, I write some software, right? And I want it to run on Android and iPhone mobile devices, which if you're going to market that to the vast public, you're you better be making sure it runs on those devices, right? You know, those devices aren't static, they aren't stable, right? They are updated every so often. And then I have to have a team of people who are making sure that my software is updated for those devices, that all of the servers running my software are up to date to be able to serve to those devices or to other environments they might need to serve to. That, you know, if something happens with the electricity supply to those servers, that there's somebody wearing a pager who has to go down there and figure out what's going on. There are people who, you know, thousands and thousands of people, and and, uh, Sarah T. Roberts has written a lot on this, as has Lily Arani and some other folks, but thousands of people who do precarious labeling data. They do precarious labor, kind of doing content moderation. And this is basically, you know, I, I would say they're at either end of these vast automated processes that claim to use magical AI, but actually require, like irreducibly require this army of poorly paid hidden human labor to fuel these products, right? And these these narratives, again, sort of, they narrow it down to one singular founder or hero, which it structurally erases all of these folks. It structurally erases the subjectivity that they bring to these technical products and, and services, these, you know, often artificial intelligence that 
whose whose primary claim is often kind of a, a form of objectivity, but it's you know ultimately it's it's humans all the way down, and the more hidden they are, the less well they're compensated, the less well they're treated, and the more room they make for a, you know a boy child hero who can continue advancing this positivist myth, you know technology as pure thought, as pure idea, as 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 progress and innovation. Well, dig into that because that's the next thing, right? Is this idea of innovation and that anything these guys come up with even if it's fucking idiotic and or destructive, um, you know, can't be stopped. Or you're a Luddite who is a technophobe, ignoring, of course, the actual history of the Luddites who were, you know, protesting not the machines themselves, but rather the fact that the machines contributed to their immiseration and starvation. Um, but that is one yeah, of the big and, myths. And, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I, I don't I, the, the the misunderstanding of what the Luddite is is always this sort of kernel of ironic humor at the at the core of any of that. Yeah, so I think I mean I think the myth of innovation also does a lot to conflate scientific progress with the latest tech company offering. And I think one of the places where this is most glaring is in this sort of gig economy. Uh, where you see, you know, when when Uber and Lyft came out of the recession of, of two thousand Eight, their, their whole business model was, you know, this is innovative innovation, right? We are a tech company, right? They were really intent on claiming their sort of technical credentials and that what they were doing was, you know, using tech to disrupt a, you know, an old and crusty and, and backward and corrupt industry, the taxi industry, uh, using technology. Um, now, as as scholars like Vina Dubal, who's also a, a powerful organizer and just a, a wonderful workers advocate, have exposed you know, what they are doing effectively is automating a piecework system that is really bad for workers, that has been outlawed in other forms for a long time, but that they were able to do that without scrutiny by claiming these, by using these, these language of innovation and entrepreneurship that drivers are micro entrepreneurs. And um, I, I would invite listeners to read some of her work and to look into how that slippage was accomplished um, because there's nothing terribly fancy about Uber and Lyft, right? But, you know, what they've done is pool information and control in the hands of one company to an extent that no taxi service could ever have accomplished, right? And they use that to have a significant advantage in, you know, quote unquote, bargaining with drivers who are are at any moment in in danger of being kicked off the platform at any moment could have their rates slashed arbitrarily for no reason, no explanation given, no way to really contest that. Right. So they, they have sort of they have achieved kind of the boss's dream, <laughs> wrapped it in some cheesy, almost dated now technical language and kind of got away with it for at least a long time. I think that the movement that's happening in California and, and in some other places is is pretty inspiring in terms of the ability to push back on that. But it has taken a long time. And I think that the, that language did a lot of work to deflect and obscure what was actually going on. It was interesting, actually, because it ties into the myth of the boy genius with his idea, because one thing I learned from Vina's work, and I also I second your recommendation, she's she's brilliant. And she also occupies this space of, you know, very incisive critic who is an organizer and knows that that's ultimately what matters. But one of her pieces, one thing I learned was that, in fact, it was taxi drivers in San Francisco who first wanted to create an app that could coordinate pickups, right? That would essentially be an Uber without <laughs> the Uber uh, 
founders and funders because they recognize the need for, you know, some new technology that would make their lives better. And I believe they wanted to call it Capalicious or something like that. And then we're mm-hmm. basically undercut because, you know, the question wasn't really who has a great idea. It's who's got the capital to build it and dominate the market and who can break laws left and right to hold on to uh, their market share and grow their market share and undermine their competitors. And so that's, you know, it's a fascinating thing to to remember because it, you know, it's like, yeah, people have these ideas. The, the problem is whether they have the resources to actually pull them off. And especially when they're not willing to engage in a mercenary business model. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a perfect example. Ride Austin is another, which was a kind of independent co-op model for app-based drive hailing that no longer exists. Um, and again, it's, it's, do you have a bunch of venture capital backing you to lose money for years while you experiment with regulatory arbitrage and, you know, data-based exploitation or kind of data-enabled exploitation? Or are you looking to do something else? And and that something else may not be considered profitable enough for you to get the investment you'd need to run these infrastructures, which are hugely expensive. This is another thing that that garage myth really misses, right? It, it costs, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to run these services at the scale we to expect them to function, right? And I think it's no accident that while I was at Google, the most powerful group by far was the infrastructure group. These are the people who maintain the data centers and the pipes and you know made sure that the, the physical material infrastructure was working and that it was you know being built to scale and that it was, you know, we were, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that group was very rarely kind of on the cover of anything. They weren't out there you know, in the press, right? Their sort of power was very quiet, but it was, it was, that was where they, they had the biggest budget. You know, it, it was in Google's interest to keep the materiality and the resource requirements of this tech kind of quiet, right? Because if, if you realize that, you know, to make this idea work, you also need a billion dollars, um, it sort of, uh, it, it tarnishes the myth a bit. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, another myth is like the myth that these platforms are neutral. And this is one a lot of people have been working to take down for a long time. And I think this is, it's a rather straightforward thing that you have to recognize, but it's that, no, well, these, these platforms, you know, especially the ones that are sort of free or advertiser driven, you know, they are, they are, they cater towards, they cater towards their clients or the advertisers. I'd like you to speak a little bit about the YouTube algorithm, right? So there's a lot, as I said, a lot of attention and concern about polarization, you know, radicalization on these online platforms. And, you know, the question is, well, why can't these companies fix it? Why won't they really address the problem? And that means, and the problem is because if they did so, they'd be attacking their own business model, which is, of course, anathema. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do think people are coming around to sort of recognize that, you know, the, the business model, the, the structure itself is the problem, not there's an error with the business model that can be corrected. The business model itself is is the problem, um, which certainly wasn't true a couple of years ago. But, you know, with the, with the YouTube algorithm, when we were organizing and that there was some organizing around YouTube in particular in 2019 after uh, Steven Crowder, who's just oleaginous right wing troll who has millions of YouTube followers. I don't even know those those numbers are astronomical. And I wonder who but he he attacked journalist Carlos Meza, and he'd been doing this for a while, who is a queer Latinx man, sort of inciting his followers to targeted harassment, death threats, et cetera. It's a, it's a pretty 
standard formula in those circles, sadly. And folks at at Google, there was a, a number of, of queer folks at Google, a number of allies outside of protested YouTube, um, just not taking these issues seriously. And one of the demands that a number of us were making was just shut down the YouTube algorithm, right? Like we don't care, you, you can search for something by title, you can have videos available displayed chronologically. There are a number of ways to present this content that doesn't rely on a machine learning based algorithm that is cal calibrated for engagement. And engagement is a, it's a marketing speak or tech marketing speak for getting people to watch as much YouTube as possible. So they see as many ads as possible. So you get as many ad dollars as possible. That is the business model, right? And of course, shutting down the algorithm would kill YouTube. There would, you know, it would, it would, it would significantly reduce ad revenue. There's a whole ecology that's built on that kind of engagement. And it, I think what I liked about that demand was it sort of, you know, it's very clear that if you wanted to stop the problem of YouTube becoming essentially sort of Nazi CNN, you could, you could shut that down. Right. But you would also be shutting down YouTube. Right. And so what is, you mm -hmm. know, well, right? I mean, you, so you might be is, making YouTube, you might actually be making YouTube better, but it wouldn't be as massive a company as it is. It wouldn't be, yeah. it wouldn't be feeding you into the next video and the next video. It wouldn't be maximizing engagement as its sole purpose. It would be, it would have a different set of principles guiding it. Possible. It's not possible within the shareholder driven multinational incentives of, of revenue growth forever and ever, right? Because YouTube is an extraordinarily expensive service to run. They have, you know, YouTube global caches, which are basically servers uh, Google will send to almost any location on the globe that kind of hosts the most popular content and are refreshed periodically that allow anyone to get to that content more quickly. So instead of hitting a server in Mountain View from Karachi, you're hitting a server nearby and, and you know, it's working better for you. It's, you know, the, 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 the traffic is extraordinarily expensive and they have the database resources are extraordinarily expensive. So it's YouTube would not be profitable to the degree that the executives at Google and their board are promising it will be profitable if they did this. And that, you know, again, we can't, you know, we can't talk about anything without talking about capitalism, but particularly this, this form of tech and what, you know, how this narrows the window of available remediation, right? And we can talk about whether we want remediation or abolition at, at some other point. But, you know, I think there's a really, YouTube is one of the most instructive examples, you know, alongside Facebook, with just how futile and performative this tinkering around the edges of this problem is, right? The, you know, we'll train an algorithm to detect hate speech, and all of a sudden, it's, you know, taking a bunch of leftist radicals offline, right? Or taking kids who came up with a new, you know, form of slang offline, and it's always racialized, and it's always problematic. Um, but it's, you know, they really, there is no way to square the problems that are caused by this business model with a continuation of this business model. And I think YouTube is, you know, YouTube is kind of the er example of that because they've also just been so ham fisted with their messaging and their marketing. And, and a lot of, you know, the folks running it have been there forever, much longer than I have. Right. So there's also kind of a, a way in which they drank their own Kool-Aid a very long time ago. And I think our, completely desensitized to the profundity of the issues they're now facing and, and totally ill-equipped. And I, I, you know, I could speak to that firsthand at Google, but I, I think it's, it's true across the valley. It's very, it's alarming if you listen closely to sort of how rote and how dated a lot of the ways in which people in power in Silicon Valley address these, these issues and, and just how, again, ill-equipped they are to, to wrestle with them. Well, we want the, you know, we're, we're speaking on the dig, which is a proudly left wing socialist podcast. So, you know, how do we want the left to deal with these issues? Because I, I feel, um, 
there are so many brilliant historians, critics, scholars, activists, and we've named some of them. There are many more. And yet sometimes I feel like the left doesn't talk enough about tech. And so maybe, you know, where where would you like to see as the sort of baseline, the starting point conversation? Where would you like to see conversations begin? You know, what should be the sort of premises or or um, problems that we keep in mind as we as we uh, tackle these issues? I, I love this question. And I think it's sadly right now the reactionary far right is doing a better job, I think, you know, in part because they are well resourced and very well organized in at this phase in history. But I don't think it's a, an accident that they have placed control of big tech at the center of their platform, you know, especially since that is not something that would necessarily appeal to their base. But you can't get through a night of the RNC convention. Um, you know, you can't do that anyway. But you know, there's there's going to be multiple mentions of anti-conservative bias, right, of sort of big tech monopolies out to get conservatives. And I think there's a way in which they have understood the centrality of tech to almost all social domains at this at this point and a way in which they have have read the the problems with tech as problems of power and control and not problems of, you know, technical mechanisms and their you know, interestingness, right? Which is sort of a, a hangover from the Obama era. There was such a technophilia there, right? It was like, oh, it's database policy. This is going to be great, right? But it was not looking at who owned the data, who made the data, who analyzed the data and, you know, who had control over what these things said, right? Who had control over these infrastructures. So I think fundamentally we need to look at this as a, a problem of power and control. And sure, you know, framings around antitrust and monopoly can get us part of the way there. But there are reasons why breaking up systems that only work at significant scale are a bit like cutting up a starfish. Right. And I think we need to think more deeply than that. You know, one, you know, I, I was recalling there was there was that day in 2017 that some people may remember where uh, half the Internet went down. Right. And a bunch of popular sites went off the, the web and it turned out that, you know, Amazon's infrastructure had gone down. And and for many people, this was the first time that they realized like how much of what we think of as sort of the internet industry, uh, the tech industry actually runs on infrastructure provided by a handful of companies. Um, so it's, you know, Amazon and Microsoft are huge infrastructure providers, IBM, Google, you know, some of them, but there aren't, you know, there aren't that many others. And, and then when you look at it, Google hosts Spotify, Netflix, Pinterest, and Slack run on Amazon. There are these big companies that we think of as, you know, sort of players in their own right. And especially if you look at Netflix and Prime, right? Like, how is that working? Um, are actually leasing their ability to run a tech-based business from one of these major players. Um, and, you know, thinking about the kinds of power that, that then, you know, accrues to these companies. It's not just that they can sort of just ha have leverage in contact negotiations or, or whatever. It's also that they're collecting data from this, right? They're collecting insight um, and they are, you know, further sort of pooling that power. I think it's also important that we look at the imbrication between these tech companies and governments, the U.S. government and, and others. Amazon runs the CIA's cloud. Uh, Microsoft is a massive government contractor. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of what we think about as sort of tech within, you know, the military or other other government agencies is actually being sort of repackaged by governments and and built by these companies. And and the reason for that is that these companies have the ability to create this technology, have these infrastructures, have spent years and and billions of dollars developing infrastructures that sort of perform in, in ways that enterprises would expect at scale. 
and the government hasn't, and they don't actually have the capacity to do the same thing that the Microsofts and the Amazons and, and the Googles and, and to an extent the IBMs are doing. So it's sort of an analysis of power. And then it's also digging where you stand, right? Where is tech touching the issue you care about? Because again, I don't think centering tech is very interesting, right? I think centering power is interesting and being like, holy shit, Amazon has a lot of power. You know, they have tendrils in so many of the domains of life that we, you know, that, that we have not potentially connected, but then where am I standing, right? What issues do I care about and where is it touching this? And how do we begin to make the connection? You know, what is the effect of that form of centralized power on this struggle, this fight? Because we have this idea of, you know, there's these tech myths and then there are the sort of things that are, are never said, right? So, you know, tech do- discourse is dominated by warnings about about China, right? And, the, and internet authoritarians, and instead of developing a coherent critique of American corporate technological power. The reflexive response when a lot of people bring up technologies of social control is immediately to point to China. And of course, this narrative is doing a lot of work. And, you know, China comes to represent sort of the apotheosis of, of dystopian authoritarianism. Like, you know, this is one more reason to defend our American values. Um, and oftentimes the Chinese social credit score is brought up as the example here. And I think, you know, this is in no way defending the Chinese social credit score. But, you know, there are kind of nuances there that we need to bring up and understand in the context of, of tech in the U.S. and 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 the way that US-based tech companies are proliferating globally. And one of those things is that, you know, frankly, the Chinese social credit score is a, a an acknowledged state policy, right? They write it down, they speak about it. It's it's known, right? This is something they are doing and that they are admitting to doing and that they are letting everyone in on. And in the US, you know, our tech is controlled primarily by private companies that operate behind a veil of corporate secrecy. And you know, it's not the same as the, the Chinese social credit score, but we are having, you know, there are a number of kind of ad hoc or, or non-coordinated products that do many of the same thing and, and I, same things. And I think I'll give a couple examples. There's in 2019, the New York Department of Financial Services kind of issued guidance that allowed life insurance companies to set premiums based on people's social media posts, right? You have a, a leaked document from Google Sidewalk that proposed, and and for those of you who hadn't been following sidewalk was a massive smart city project that Google had planned on the waterfront in Toronto. And a lot of amazing organizers actually pushed back and the the project was canceled, but it was, it was a sort of fully technophilic uh, city infrastructure that would have smart sensors and cameras and all sorts of things that was supposed to improve civic life, but is obviously sort of funneling massive amounts of, of data about our, you know, daily activities, our spending, our parking, our, you know, friends, et cetera, to a, you know, a company that isn't even based in Canada. Right. And there was, there was a lot of pushback on that. And it was, um, it's an instructive effort that I would encourage leftists to look into, but, you know, Google sidewalk in, in addition to wanting to sort of instrument this city and extract all of this valuable data and become sort of a, a dependency on which civic life relied in Canada. Um, Google sidewalk also proposed the implementation of a you know, basically a kind of a, a, a citizen credit score by another name. And this this credit score would just sort of, you know, it would aggregate data about people's habits, their spending, et cetera, and just give a, a sense to those who were receiving the score, whether that person was trustworthy or, or et cetera. You have 
you know, companies that offer blacklists for bar patrons, right? They, they're companies that are offering blacklists for, for landlords. You have facial recognition companies being used to sort of identify people who are criminals or, or people at the border. So I don't want to make too much of this comparison because, of course, there are significant differences. And I think it, the ways in which the sort of China story has been narrated are, is pretty warped. But, you know, this is to say that we have a lot of these these infrastructures operating now in the U.S., but they're operating through private companies. They're often hidden from the people on whom they're operating, and they're rarely discussed in the same terms. Uh, they are not the type of grand political project that the Chinese party and government is offering. They are you know, a, a hodgepodge of smaller services that are being offered by companies for profit, but effectively doing the same thing and, and effectively engaging in a form of classification and social control that is determining who gets resources and who doesn't, you know, who is worthy and who isn't. Um, and we should look really carefully at, you know, in whose hands that power lies. 100%. So I want to um, ask, ask three very tightly interrelated questions. The first is just what is AI? What is artificial intelligence? How much of what we hear about it is hype. You know, I just made a note of a headline I saw from the Financial Times day before yesterday. You know, an AI breaks the writing barrier. A new system called GPT-3 is shocking experts with its ability to use and understand language as well as human beings do. I feel like I've seen that headline like a hundred times. And then, you know, why does it matter? What are the stakes in the conversation around artificial intelligence? What is AI? Um, that's a question I don't always have the answer to because it is such an overhyped term. It's it's basically a marketing term that is used to, you know, connote data analytics products. It can be anything from some, you know, kind of a, a statistical process to something that uses sort of advanced machine learning techniques, neural nets, all, all of that. But uh, from the outside, it's very difficult to tell. And that's by design because AI is selling right now, right? So you get a, a lot of sort of janky products, both sophisticated and not sophisticated, that are sold under that moniker of, of artificial intelligence. But, you know, if we are talking about the me machine learning based artificial intelligence, that is sort of the the thing that I was working most closely with when I was at Google. And, and now that I'm at, at AI now at NYU, you know, we're talking about a computational product that takes a lot of data, a lot of labeled data, right? And this data, the, the labels on that data are important because the labels are telling the system what is there, right? Like this is a cat, this is a dog. If you have sort of an image-based system or, you know, this is text about this or text about that, if you have a language-based system, et cetera. But, the, but those labels are important and they're labor intensive, right? Anyway, they, they, it takes a bunch of labeled data and it basically learns from this data some kind of representation about something, right? So it can learn from a data set of faces, um, sort of how to, or, or a data set of kind of faces that have been pre-processed, it, it can learn kind of how to recognize a face, or it can learn how to recognize a cat, or it can be shown pictures of everyday objects. And then when it's shown another picture that was not in the original data set, it can say, oh, you know what, that's a, that's a book, or that's a cup, or, or what have you, right? So these are, these are systems that require massive amounts of data to instruct this model on what kind of version of reality it's going to be interfacing with, right? So this is, you know, this is the way the world looks. This is the way people look, you know, this is the way a face looks, et cetera. Um, and then it requires intensive computational resources to sort of, you know, what we call train this model. So that's basically to sort of kind of use this data to teach it what these, these worlds look like. These models are then deployed to 
kind of analyze new data, right? So once it's seen all this old data, it's, you know, it's learned what things look like. It's able to sort of, you know, encounter new data and make a prediction of, you know, what is that? Is that a picture of a cat or is that a picture of a painting? Is that a person or is that a cartoon? You know, what whatever it is. So that is a sort of simple version, a, a kind of condensed version of, of what AI is. But I think in that version, there are some important points to be aware of. And, and one is that there is no there's sort of no magic to it, right? This is taking information generated by humans, labeled by humans, and sort of training a machine to recognize things that look like that information in the future. What it's not doing is building a sort of miraculous system that can objectively understand these things, right? Our brain is not a computer. This is a, you know, this is a, a pervasive, pervasive and pernicious myth. And that building these systems requires a huge amount of resources. There are only a handful of organizations, um, most of them private companies in the world that have the combination of resources needed to create these advanced machine learning models. And, and at least re those resources are abundant data, which you can't just buy computational infrastructure, which is hugely expensive, you know, if it, you know, and there's more to say on that and people with a type of elite technical training who are able to build these models to do the sort of work to train them to uh, to kind of parameterize them, etc. And, you know, that that combination is not something you can just bootstrap. And it's sort of it, it is it is part of how this concentration of power functions is that, you know, most a lot of the machine learning that's advertised by sort of smaller companies or, or used by governments is in fact sort of built at these big companies and then licensed out as a service. Right. It's it's not something that is easy to make. I think it's also we need to perturb the story of AI as a great innovation that has happened in the last 10 years. And I think we already did a little bit of that. But look at, you know, when and for whom this became a big deal. And this was primarily the ad tech companies, so the Googles and the Facebooks and and Amazon to an extent, because Amazon has massive data stores and massive uh, massive infrastructures. But it was companies that had already begun investing in these computational infrastructures, had already had the resources to collect and store huge amounts of data. Already had a reason to do that, right? To sort of profile users and sell more ads to them, and realize that, oh, we can repurpose this to build models that can then extend our reach, right? We, we can use the resources we have to build AI models that will extend our reach into healthcare or into education, right? So it was, it was a way, you know, I think it opened up a lot of potential market opportunities, which is always something that these companies want. And it was a way of narrating the increased power of a lot of these ad tech companies who were kind of the winners of the commercialization of network computational infrastructure in the, the late 90s, 2000s. This is so, I mean, this is something that I think is so key. I mean, just underscoring the amount of resources that you need to have at your disposal so you can deploy AI, you know, whether or not it's as brilliant as it might claim. And then, you know, who has the budget to be, to purchase those tools. And, you know, I think this is where it's, it's easy to get really, dystopian because it's like, yeah, in theory, you could use AI for all sorts of cool things, right? Like a smart city that's not owned by Google, <laughs> but actually is a public benefit and you're trying to have more energy efficient and also reliable public transit. I mean, that would be great, right? If it was actually in the public interest. But it's difficult to point to examples of these tools being used in ways that we would approve of because, 
you know, people we like aren't able to, to develop, let alone to purchase the services. It's exactly right that the subjunctive has done a lot of heavy lifting in allowing these tech companies and their wares into our lives, right? Like, oh, you know, it'd be great if the bus came on time. Well, Google says they're going to make the bus come on time. So uh, why not? Right. And I think that is particularly in the in, in the government sectors that has happened at a time after you know four decades of neoliberal austerity policies where that type of offer is, is difficult to live, look at critically. And we've seen you know, we've seen disasters. I, you know, I could, I could speak to one that just comes to the top of my mind that I think you and I have talked about before, but, you know, the state of Michigan under Rick Snyder, and who is uh, the, the governor of Michigan, uh, who presided over the Flint water crisis and, and should be in jail. But Rick Snyder, under his, his governorship, Michigan implemented a system called Midas. And, and this was an automated system that was meant to adjudicate unemployment claims. And so they they fired everyone in the unemployment benefits office who had been assessing these claims for fraud or to you know make sure they were valid and, and the paperwork was done well, and instead put in an algorithmic system, sort of proto-AI system, that was going to do these assessments instead of human labor doing these assessments. It was, you know, it was it was money saving, it was efficient, it was you know technocratic, all of all of these sort of neoliberal values. And you know, the system ended up getting it wrong or or inaccurately accusing 40,000 or more people of fraud, right? This led to bankruptcies. This led to suicides. This led to a kind of scarlet letter that became part of people's credit and their permanent records so they couldn't get loans, they couldn't get jobs in the future, right? It, it followed them around. And that's you know, that's where we have to talk about these profoundly high stakes of these kinds of claims, right? When there are claims like breaks the writing barrier, a new system is, you know, shocking experts, it understands as well as human beings, right? Like, like, that's kind of silly, because this is, you know, GPT-3 is, you know, it's, it's just a bigger model trained with more data that kind of approximates language, it's not magical, it's not sentient, it's not conscious, whatever. And, and we all kind of know that. And we sort of smirk at the headline writers, right? But that narrative is doing, you know, powerful work, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, softening the ability to critique these systems. It's, it's, it's making it harder to contest and question them. And I think making it easier for kind of neoliberal technocrats who are fine saving money, maybe don't really care about people, are fine with you know, certain populations being irreparably harmed by the mistakes that these actually very brittle and dumb systems make, you know, it gives them an, an excuse to sort of carry on. And, and the, the confluence of decades of austerity and the the, the starvation of our, our social infrastructures with these kind of the, the credence in this tech magical thinking, I think, is, has, has done a significant amount of damage. And a lot of times we don't know where that damage is coming from, because, you know, as in the Michigan case, a lot of these people knew something was happening. They didn't know the system was called Midas. Right. We learned about that from the lawyer who tried the case. But these things are often implemented in secret. And, you know, oftentimes there's sort of contracts that enforce trade secrecy and, and non-disclosure and, and other things like that. And so sort of tracking down where is this coming from? Where is, you know, who believed that this technology was magic? Who allowed it to govern our lives? And how do we trace back the harm that's being felt on the ground to a system that was designed in, you know, a boardroom in Sunnyvale? And I right. think sometimes, the, you know, the cynicism is even more overt than that. The austerity is the goal of these tools, right? That they're you know, that's the thing. The state isn't deploying technology to enrich and empower <laughs> the citizens. It's often being deployed to deny people benefits. I mean, we saw that just now uh, post-pandemic in Florida, where the uh -huh. unemployment benefit website 
was essentially broke on purpose, right? They wanted to keep the numbers down, so they made it hard to use. The Debt Collective, which is the union for debtors that I organized with, we just had this with the Department of Education. So we created a form, a mobile form, so people could exercise their rights to get their debts discharged. Then this was under Obama. The Department of Education says, no, we'll take the form. And decided they were going to do a $90 million website redesign to make this form work. And a whistleblower a month ago just came out and said that the $90 million redesign was nixed because it was too, quote, user-friendly. And they didn't want people to be able to use the federal government website to actually enact their basic rights and potentially get debt relief. So we have something that's so cynical, which is using technology to make it, to make people's lives impossible and to demoralize, disempower, degrade, and maybe destroy them, you know, because uh-huh. the stakes are really high right now. So that's, you know, I think that's something to be aware of is like we associate tech with shininess and efficiency. And it can also be, you know, it can be used for something that's the precise opposite of that. Yeah. That deep frustration when using some dumb technical portal isn't working, right? When you're trying to log on to something, when you're trying to make Zoom work, when you're, you know, doing whatever it is and it, it just doesn't work. And, you know, I I was in tech for, you know, it's almost 15 years now and that still happens to me every day. But you never really know, right? Is this is this error message because, you know, there was a an evil plot in Florida to keep the numbers down to save money for some reason? Or is this error message because I didn't update my OS, right? But the, the sense of sort of, powerlessness and, and confusion that I think we've been trained to accept in relation to these these infrastructures is, you know, it's another thing that I think the left should, you know, push back on. Like, why can't we contest that? Why can't we know, right? I, recognizing that you may have to change entire structures and institutions to make that change. But, you know, why why isn't it possible and why is it okay for only a handful of people to potentially have the answer to profound questions like that? I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Fully Automated Luxury Communism, A Manifesto by Aaron Bastani. In the 21st century, new technologies should liberate us from work. Automation shouldn't undermine an economy built on full employment, but instead should be the path to a world of liberty, luxury, and happiness for everyone. Technological advance will reduce the value of commodities, food, healthcare, and housing towards zero. In fully automated luxury communism, Aaron Bastani conjures a vision of extraordinary hope, showing how we move to energy abundance, feed a world of 9 billion, overcome work, transcend the limits of biology, and establish meaningful freedom for everyone. Rather than a final destination, such a society merely heralds the real beginning of history. Fully Automated Luxury Communism, a manifesto by Aaron Bastani, out now in paperback from Verso Books. So I want to pivot to the pandemic, which somehow, you know, we've managed to not mention for a while. So that's impressive. The economic crisis and uh, this reality we're living in has revealed our dependence on technology in a pretty profound way. I mean, just on the, in the most sort of literal sense that people are relying on Amazon, Instacart, right? People 
are dependent on Zoom for work. You know, little children are dependent on Zoom for their school. Uh, and, you know, this is this is worrisome because I just read yesterday that Bezos is now worth $200 billion. So these tech companies are, are you know, amassing even more power and monopoly control. But there's, you know, there's an element, right, of Naomi Klein's classic idea of disaster capitalism and the way that tech companies are moving in. And we're seeing this in, in other ways, too. I'm thinking about resistance hero Governor Cuomo and the way that he made this big show of reaching out to Eric Schmidt and, you know, people who uh, could advise him uh, as he tries to, to guide New York State through this crisis. Um, I'm also thinking about how, I don't know what it means for all of us who are experiencing this thing people have been talking about for a while, but the sort of the collapse of all of the different spheres of life. So the workplace, the home, the school, the doctor's office, like the the dance party, right? It's all now through this these few platforms. Yeah, and then they're also taking over the government, as the Cuomo example shows. Um, what does this moment tell us um, about the power of these companies? And you know, what are you what are you worried about moving moving forward? What what has COVID what has COVID revealed? I don't know that my concerns are different than the concerns I had going into COVID, but I, I'm worried about the effect COVID is having on so many millions of people, just how devastating it's been, you know, specifically for you know black people and people of color and, and others who are sort of for a number of, of reasons forced into sort of lower paying jobs, have lost their jobs. And I am, you know, I'm deeply concerned again with this kind of acceleration of the the feedback loop between these austerity politics policies and these, you know, often shifty, possibly broken, maybe malfeasant tech solutions that 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 fill those vacuums. And I think, you know, you saw that in New York where, you know, the only budget that was increased was the NYPD. Everything else was slashed. And then there's this big ceremony of, of basically, you know, turning over key facets of of government, or at least intending to turn these over to tech billionaires who very clearly have their own agendas on this. Uh, so I think, you know, we're seeing kind of an acceleration of that. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing also how slippery these companies and, and some other companies are and in the the way in which they effortlessly reposition existing products or capabilities as solutions for COVID. So, you know, Facebook has been pushing Facebook for schools for a very long time. They have these education platforms. You know, there were some kids in Brooklyn who walked out of school because they hated them so much, right? It's just, you know, sit kids at a terminal and and call that education. Um, but they are now marketing these these learning platforms as sort of homeschool aids, right? So it just, you know, quickly shipped this to, you know, this is this is now the solution to the problem you're facing, which may be an overcrowded house without like room or attention to be able to do schooling. But, you know, here's Facebook um, sort of rebranding its products for this moment. I think you're seeing that, seeing that across the board. Um, my my colleague, Aaron McElroy and um, Genevieve Freed, who, you know, Aaron is one of the co-founders of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project and is a, a scholar who's looked at housing and, and housing justice and, and sort of the concept of property for a long time. Um, and is now looking at, you know, what we've termed landlord tech, which is this, you know, these technologies that are being used to increasingly surveil and assess tenants and people seeking shelter and are, they're no good. But we looked at a number of companies who had sort of pivoted around COVID to sell their, their technologies as, you know, when before they were marketing it around kind of neighborhood security and the specter of, of, of bad, not letting someone bad in your house. Now you had a 
facial recognition entry systems that were being marketed as touchless, as somehow capable of of excluding those who are plague ridden and only admitting those who aren't. Right. That this is a this is magical thinking. Right. The kind of database infrastructure you'd have to make to implement and the kind of invasive health data you'd need to make that a reality are are extensive and just don't exist right now. Right. But you see one kind of the ease with which this marketing is adopted and frankly the ease with which it's it's considered credible by a lot of people and to the willingness for these kinds of infrastructures and i think in that example there was a, a company called bioconnect that does facial recognition entry services access services so instead of a key you present your face to a camera and if it recognizes your face that you know the door opens for you um and of course these systems are riddled with flaws they are you know contain unsurprising racial biases in which they don't work for people with darker skin oftentimes or more traditionally feminized looking faces, et cetera, et cetera. But the, you know, the company was, was advertising it as a touchless solution um, and was sort of prefiguring a future in which our health data would be available to our landlords, in which a private company could exclude us access to our own homes, our own communities, if you know, test data was added to a database uh, that said we had been in contact with someone with COVID. Et cetera, et cetera. So I think I think what we're seeing is is marketing, but we're also seeing kind of where these companies are willing to go with this and the types of futures we need to defend against. Well, and the facial recognition stuff, I mean, you just said it, but you know, there's lots of evidence that uh, it's even less accurate against dark skin. But then it, it reminds me of the uh, open letter that actually uh, you asked me to sign. I can't tell now if it was a few weeks or a few months ago that it had to do with facial recognition technologies. Maybe say a few words about that because it, it was such a, from the outside, you're just like, how can we be having this conversation in 2020? Um, and yet here we are. <laughs> yeah. And that was, you know, I was really happy to do some some heavy lifting for that for that letter. And this was, I think, a pretty important moment in that it marked an increasing turn among scholars and researchers and people who occupy these elite positions to position themselves as organizers and to make demands and to do more than critique. Right. And I think this was, you know, this was something I was really happy to see. And and actually that that letter came together because, um, you know, one of my colleagues, the historian Theodore Dreyer, you know, sent out a tweet that was, you know, like there's a, there's a there's a study that claims to be able to determine whether somebody is a criminal as an essential trait based on an image of their face. And this is messed up and we should organize around it. And I, I don't remember the original language, but but she and, and a handful of scholars from a number of dis- different disciplines sort of got together and, and drafted this ridiculously well cited letter that was like, this is, you know, you cannot predict criminality using facial recognition. This is, you know, this is, you know, the, the letter made demands. I have one line from it here that I, I just want to, I, I think, puts it very clearly. And, and that's, um, quote, let's be clear, there is no way to develop a system that can predict or identify criminality, in quotes, that is not racially biased, because the category of criminality itself is basically biased. And of course, the, the point being made here, which would be self-evident to a number of the listeners, I imagine, is that, you know, criminality is a category that's constructed through law enforcement practices, through the carceral system. It is not a naturally occurring category and it cannot be, you know, it is not a something that can be essentially sort of biologically identified. But even so, we are seeing kind of a rash of papers, of research, of marketing claims by AI companies that claim to be able to 
detect essential characteristics or sort of constructed characteristics like the idea that someone's a criminal based on sort of biological traits or or other kind of intimate um intimate data. It's digital phrenology, basically. Yeah, basically. And and this paper actually like cited Lombroso, who's been widely discredited, right? So it was it's also showing there's the you know, machine learning takes data, it trains a model based on data, it then applies it to the world to see if new data looks like old data or not, right? That's pretty simple. Right. And so machine learning scientists are sort of taking data, right? They're taking data from all realms and all disciplines, but they don't have the training to understand that. Uh, and so you're seeing this sort of slippage in which, you know, someone like Lombroso can be cited as a credible source by people who were never given the opportunity or or never had the interest to sort of dig into the extremely uh, messy and grotesque histories of race science and physiognomy and Lombroso's methodological failings and, and all of this, right? So you're seeing a combination. There's a, a kind of naivete, which is being driven by the, you know, the industrial incentives that are mean that everyone who's studying computer science is now studying to be an AI engineer suddenly, and is driven by the sort of disciplinary narrowness of that field where there, you know, none of these critical questions are up to, for debate. And if they were up for debate, there'd be a lot of problems for the industry and the set of incentives. And I think, uh, of course, the idea that you can automate the detection of criminality is it serves a lot of other purposes as well that are um, kind of in line with some of the worst tendencies of our present moment. What counts as a crime is always a political question. So, you know, there's no market for an app that detects criminal bankers or criminal landlords. I want to go back to the housing thing because it's, you, you mentioned Aaron and the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. And actually, the Debt Collective is, is uh, working with them right now building a tool for tenants right now focused in Los Angeles County. Hopefully something will be built that can scale up to California state. But in Los Angeles County, experts warn that 365,000 households, not individuals, but households are going to be at risk of eviction when the moratorium on evictions lifts, right? And if you go to the state county website, there's a nice little handy dandy app there if you want to evict your tenants. The state provides a digital tool, a mobile, you know, app, right? And it's like, here you go, get that eviction going. There's, you know, nothing for tenants on the other side of it. So, you know, it, and and essentially, you know, activists are having to build this from scratch, but then also trying to do something that's a bit more, you know, interesting than just helping people exercise their basic rights, but to also then, you know, help them organize uh, and connect with tenants unions and and hopefully build build tenant power. But the point is just that there's, you know. <laughs> the landlords are being served. You know, landlords have all kinds of, of what you guys are calling prop tech, right? Prop, property technology um, yeah. to or, monitor or the landlord tenants. Tech. I think mm-hmm. We adopted the term landlord tech because prop tech wasn't as cute. Oh yeah, I think landlord. I think landlord tech is better. But there's no, there's really no, you know, there's no tenant tech, right? Because again, mm-hmm. it's the economic incentives driving this. But it's something where, you know, I think one thing that's been interesting for me, I mentioned that I had written this tech critical book in 2014, is that, you know, I've spent a lot of time since that book came out actually trying to build tech that serves a radical mm-hmm. purpose, right? Like it kind of coming out of that and going, we're totally fucked. You know, capitalism has, you know, capitalism infuses so much of the tools we use, but hey, we could still do something and and trying to figure out, you know, how we could build build tools that actually do build people power. Um, without being like techno fetishist about it. Yeah. And I think Anti-Eviction Mapping Project is a great example, as is you know, the work that the Debt Collective has done. 
you know, I don't think I've met people more sensitive to the amount of labor that has to go into maintaining those tech than people who have have worked to build and maintain these systems for radical purposes for, you know, helping in, in, in the anti-eviction mapping project is, is putting out this tool called kind of a victor book, right? And it took a huge amount of research to figure out, you know, who are the biggest evictors in the city? How do we, you know, get that information? How do we catalog it in a way that would be intelligible to tenants, right? How do we begin to create an infrastructure that will allow people to more easily organize around that? Um, and how do we do that, particularly with the rise of corporate landlordism, which is sort of concentrated power in the handful of in the hands of, a, you know, a couple of large companies, which was something that, you know, Aaron has taught me sort of came, you know, right after the financial crash in 2008, there was just this, you know, buying up of properties and this sort of the, the rise of landlord tech and the ability to sort of remotely manage, control, surveil tenants as sort of, you know, fungible data points, and maybe not as your neighbors and friends, these corporate landlordism and landlord tech were kind of you know, smelt in the same oven around the same time. Um, and so beginning to disentangle the way these infrastructures work together and then figure out where are the leverage points for organizing, where are the leverage points for connection is, you know, in itself a huge amount of research work. And then to, you know, provide that as a service that has to be up all the time, right? That's going to work on the newest version of whatever, that's going to display property properly on someone's phone, that's updated when laws are updated or when ownership changes, et cetera. It's, it's a huge amount of labor and really good work that I will I will continue to support. Uh. Yeah, I mean, so we can't talk, so, you know, the, the, when you get to the question of housing, it actually naturally leads to the question of policing, right? Because so much policing uh-huh. is actually about securing affluent people's property investments. We see uh-huh. this in places like Detroit, where, you know, after the city's bankruptcy and the financial woes, then, you know, in order to kind of corporate landlords, wealthy investors come buy up retail in the uh, real, sorry, come and buy up real estate in the city center. And then homelessness is criminalized. Um, you know, simple things like loitering, being out on the public streets, you know, part of what a big part of what police do is make investments more profitable. Um, and so one thing, you know, I was thinking about as these evictions come to is how we we're having this um, you know, important conversation about police brutality, but we're about to have this wave of, you know, police evicting tenants and working for landlords, um, which is which is certainly a, a form of, of violence, you know, in service precisely of this, in, in service of, of the landlords. I guess I, I would love for you to talk more about the the racism that's baked into so many of these technologies and, you know, also how it's being deployed against protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters in particular, and how it how tech is used to kind of you know, strengthen the racial hierarchy. I I think there is a lot to say on this, and I would I would point folks to the work of Sarah Hamid, who uh, is a an organizer and a scholar and a researcher who looks particularly at the the uses of of carceral tech. Um, she's based on the West Coast, but just had a really lovely interview in Logic Magazine that kind of gets into some of the guts of of these questions and you know what carceral tech is and how how we deal with tech as its own question in the context of a carceral state. But, you know, tech is certainly being used by police. It's being used by ICE. It's being used by law enforcement. Um, Oftentimes it's not, you know, this isn't an LRAD device or a, uh, you know, a a device that the police have, although they they certainly have a lot of of technical gadgets. 
but it's the police being able to access our social media data or, you know, otherwise pull, you know, intimate geolocation records. We've seen, you know, a, a number of geofence warrants, which are, you know, basically the police asking a tech company who has this data, give me information on everyone who was in this radius at this time in this vicinity, right? Which is, uh, there's a lot of other people who can talk about the, you know, constitutional issues with that. But it's, you know, I think the the lesson here is that if the data exists, um, it's likely going to end up in the hands of the police. Uh, you have Amazon who complied with at least 2,000 warrants to turn over Alexa data. So Alexa, for those of you who live a blessed life away from these troubles, Alexa is Amazon's virtual assistant. You put those mics around your house and it is ambiently recording the intimate domestic activities of folks, right? And then sending that up to Amazon. Um, of course, when you buy these devices for convenience, you're not thinking that that would end in the hands of, of you know, police, right? So they complied with um, requests for that data at least 2,000 times. We don't know about others that might have been sealed or, or, you know, otherwise not counted there. You have Amazon Ring. And I think when we get into sort of protecting property, protecting capital, this, this gets kind of right at the heart of it. But uh, Amazon Ring is a sort of doorbell surveillance system. So you stick, you know, Amazon Ring on the outside of your house, and then you can connect your mobile phone or whatever. And, and when someone comes to your door, you get a video of who's there. Um, of course, Amazon also gets a video of who's there. And it's sort of you know, in in the work that Aaron's been doing and, and the work that I've been sort of working with them on, um, we sort of counted that type of neighborhood surveillance among the category of landlord tech, but it has already led to an increase in you know, racist police calls around, you know, delivery workers or people who don't quote unquote look like they belong in a neighborhood. But that's not the only issue with Ring. Ring also has, you know, while marketing itself to consumers is also marketing itself behind the scenes to local police departments. So Ring is offering police access to, um, or Amazon is offering police access to, you know, unlimited Ring video footage in exchange for police acting basically as Amazon salespeople for Ring, right? Encouraging residents, encouraging people to, you know, buy and install this system um, based on whatever. So you you know, this is sort of a conflation of of sort of landlords and police interest of kind of property owners and police interest in, in a very literal sense. And, you know, we learned late last year, and I believe they may have implemented it. I haven't I haven't checked up, but that Ring had plans to add facial recognition features and potentially a neighborhood watch list, which means that if I came to your door, Astra, and and you had for some reason made the choice to install a ring system at your home and I were in a police mugshot database. Ring would, you know, potentially scan my face. It would match it against that database, and it would send a flag to the police that, you know, Meredith Whitaker, who's wanted for something or another, uh, assuming I was, was at this location. And then you can imagine police can make a, uh, it, say you have Alexa too. So I come into your house and we have a conversation about, you know, some secretive enterprise, and then, you know, Alexa picks all of that up, and police can make a get a warrant to request that data from Amazon as well. So, you know, I think when we we have to understand that all of this data, all of these technologies are, are ultimately going to be available or used or in some form kind of a part of these this broader carceral state. And that oftentimes it's not simply the technologies that are sold directly to police, the facial recognition systems that they you know, may use on the back end or what have you. But the the way in which all of these technologies are accruing extraordinarily personal 
information, extraordinarily revealing information about us as we go about our daily lives, sort of taking advantage of a convenience or simply being scanned as we walk through places. And and all of this is you know due to the way that infrastructure and power and data are concentrated in the hands of, of, of a few actors in particular is becoming increasingly available to police and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And to ICE as well, right? Which is where there has been a lot of action around the demand to not collaborate with ICE. And you know, there have been some white collar walkouts about that too. Could you could you say more about the technology there and how it's being deployed by the Border Patrol and what companies are leading the charge in that space? ICE is, you know, I think ICE is the, the Border Patrol is the largest law enforcement agency in the US and you know, the kind of border region is the least constitutional, right? So it's this this um really, you know, I I think it deserves the attention it's gotten, especially given the um, human rights crimes that have been perpetrated by um, ICE and the CBP on the border. Um, but you know, effectively, ICE has been supercharged, is a term I've heard, due to the, uh, the their ability to access technologies of surveillance and and tracking and um, you know uh, surveillance tracking detection. Um, and a lot of these are being provided by companies like Palantir and Anderul. Amazon is also a big ICE contractor. I think Mike, Microsoft has ICE contracts. Like the big tech companies um, are certainly in bed with them. And, and it, it bears mentioning that Palantir is a smaller company, but Palantir runs on top of Amazon's infrastructure, as does, I believe, Anderil. So again, you're seeing these sort of interrelationships that are really important to keep track of. But you know, Palantir in particular provides kind of surveillance for ICE agents. And this type of surveillance has allowed them to kind of suck in a lot of data about individuals, about families, about you know networks and communities of friends, and to use this to sort of target and identify specific people. So you know a, a lot of times the comparison I've heard is you know in in the past, ICE would maybe engage in workplace raids, right? But they weren't showing up at your home, they weren't showing up at your child's school, they weren't showing up at your doctor's when you had a hospital appointment. They weren't showing up at court when you had a hearing. And these technologies have allowed them to sort of expand their range and expand the type of terror that they are able to inflict on immigrant populations and Latinx populations and and others who are deemed sort of not belong by whatever rubric they're using, which is, of course, deeply anti-Black and deeply racist. You know, this this ability to expand their reach is has led to an ice that is showing up at people's arraignment hearings that are is showing up when people are sick in the hospital that pick up parents in front of their children's school and, you know, leave kids waiting to be picked up by a relative or or, or by whoever else. and what this campaign has done, which is this No Tech for ICE campaign, which has been led by the organization Mijente with a lot of solidarity from tech workers, is connect these terrorizing practices that are being executed by ICE to the technology that is enabling them. And to begin to connect the experience of people on the ground, you know, what does it feel like to be, you know, hunted, to not feel safe leaving your home, to not feel safe safe meeting your friends, et cetera, with the 
you know, technology and the, the kind of marketing claims and, and all of that that are actually enabling those abuses. And I think it's a, it's a model for the kind of organizing I'd like to see more of, right? It takes the expertise of the tech worker, of the people who are, have this sort of rarefied view inside these rooms where these decisions that are often secret are being made. And it sort of combines that with the, you know, deep expertise of lived experience of the people who are actually going through those. And, and, you know, there isn't a way to compromise on either of those. I think, you know, when we think about this organizing, we need both. And, you know, there's no way for a, a programmer to hypothesize about what that would be, right? For somebody in tech to, you know, assume they understand that experience or the implications of the technology they're building unless they you know, live in those environments. It's sort of impossible to even talk about technology without talking about the the military. And of course, all of these arenas we've been looking at, policing, um, border patrol are also fully fully militarized, but I mean, the internet um, has deep deep roots in, in the military. I mean, we can think about DARPA, and those military contracts are you know incredibly desired by the big tech companies, you know, by by Google, by Amazon. Can you talk a little bit about that about that deeper context, and then specifically your experience and the story of Project Maven and and what that was about and, and what, it, what it signified. You know, I, I see a kind of Venn diagram between policing and the military in which there's there's certainly overlap there. And there's a lot of, you know, try it in police forces in the U.S. and then, you know, port it to places that might be deemed similar outside of the U.S. or import military technology um, and you know, for police use or law enforcement use in the U.S. So, you know, I, I would see these as, as certainly a continuum. And, you know, that was actually one of the arguments we made when we were organizing around Maven is, you know, we are building these technology for, you know, if, if we are building this technology for the Department of Defense, we are also, we need to also assume that we are building it for domestic police forces. And can we reckon with that as a conscious choice and not something that we are, you know, avoiding as we rush to sign this contract? But I think, you know, I think the history around the military, you know, often the fact that the internet was initially sort of resourced and funded and, and built by, you know, by the military um, is used as a justification that it's actually not that bad that tech companies now contract with the military, right? It's all coming back home. And, you know, would you like the internet not to exist? Small woman, they will say to me. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think what you have seen is, you know, certainly there was a lot of military investment, there was a lot of public investment in these, you know, networked infrastructures back in the day. And then, you know, large companies uh, kind of commercialized these infrastructures and sort of built them out in ways that were profitable. And that is what we call tech now. Uh, and government didn't do that, right? Government actually doesn't have the resources that these companies have. And, and that's a, you know, I, I made that point earlier, but I think it's an important point to emphasize is that you can't just bootstrap massive amounts of data. You can't just invent that out of thin air, right? You don't have the pipelines, you don't have the infrastructures, you don't have the market reach to sort of collect that, right? And, and make use of it. Neither can you just sort of build from scratch without extraordinary expense, you know, both in terms of buying the material infrastructures and in terms of the the people needed to run them and continually calibrate and tend to them. You can't just build these massive computational infrastructures. And if you're the military or the U.S. government, it's going to be really hard to hire these rock star level AI engineers who at this point are demanding kind of football player size salaries. Right. So there's a there's a kind of confluence of things where, you know, the tech companies, the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts, et cetera, have these affordances. And the US military, the US government doesn't, although they have, you know, a lot of money, et cetera. It's just not, 
you know, it's not possible to kind of get that magic trifecta. And so there is a, you know, there's a desire on the part of the military or the government to kind of get their hands on some of this. And it was, you know, I think it was back in 2011, it was a big deal when the CIA decided that instead of to build their own, they were going to license their cloud from Amazon, right? And it was because Amazon could do things they couldn't do, right? And that is only, you know, that that's sort of continuing. Um, and it's continuing in the context of a sort of decade plus long entree that's been made by people like Eric Schmidt uh, to the kind of military elite. And, you know, trying to sort of figure out how a company like Google that is sort of all primary colors and and sort of saccharine human good language, right, could sort of work with the military. And I think it's, you know, in the past years, these big cloud contracts, um, like the Jedi contract, which is a, a massive cloud contract that Google was competing over with Amazon and Microsoft. Microsoft eventually got it, but it's on hold now. It's a big mess. Um, but these big cloud contracts have been seen, particularly by you know Google and companies who weren't in the sort of government infrastructure provisioning market before then, as a way to expand their market reach and as a way to get these it's multi-billion dollar contracts oftentimes get that money, um, which would be much harder to get from sort of licensing infrastructure and services to you know companies or whoever else is going to use them. So um, yeah, there's there's been a big push for these types of contracts. And, and, you know, my experience at Google was sort of kind of when I threw myself into organizing was around the Maven contract, which was a, a secretive contract that Google had signed with the Department of Defense to build AI enabled drone surveillance and targeting technology. And, you know, it was, it was actually, I think we had a lot of advantages organizing around that because it was so, they had handled it so clumsily and it was so anathema to Google's kind of marketing self-image, right, that it wasn't hard to argue, you know, in that context. You know, there were a number of us who were sort of convinced of the evils of imperialism and, and you know, we're certainly against the drone war and, and all of that. But, I, you know, I didn't have to convince everyone to become leftists, right? They, you know, there were a lot of people who simply, wherever they were coming from, didn't really want to work on military technology. A lot of people who also understood that, you know, because they had studied this stuff and been immersed in it, that this technology didn't work to do what it said it did, right? A lot of people who, you know, weren't U.S. citizens or weren't nationalists, even if they were, who comprised a workforce that was global, right? Who didn't want to contribute to the U.S. military apparatus. A lot of people who had gotten sort of, you know, kind of squeamish after Trump was elected and started thinking about, you know, government and military power slightly differently. So, you know, I think we, you know, we, we, organized and, and won. Google co canceled that contract and in canceling that contract sort of foreclosed on their opportunity to sign the bigger Jedi contract, which is like Maven was sort of a try before you buy, see if Google can work with the U.S. military and Jedi was the prize. Um, and they, you know, it was very clear they weren't going to get that. So they um, made a statement that, you know, because they are ethical, they will not be bidding on it. You know, it was a, it was an interesting story in which we were, in which we won because we won and, and it was real good, solid organizing. And I'm super proud to have worked with those folks, um, but in which we also won because part of, you know, the, the sort of Silicon Valley mythology was like turned against itself for a bit. Right. There were people who really did want to do good, who'd been sold that identity as part of their their offer package to come work at Google and didn't want that to be sort of, you know, washed away. And I think, you know, I think it's a little bit more complicated now. These companies are a bit more sensitive, a bit more uh, sophisticated uh, in the way that they're dealing with organizing, but we had a, a bit of a head, 
you know, a heads up on that or a head start because they just they weren't expecting it. <laughs> That's a great segue into a deceptively simple question, which I want to post you next. Who is a tech worker? This is a question that actually came up. There was a, a project I was working on with my colleague, Sarah Myers West, um, who's done a lot of work on on these worker issues and and, and on you know, surveillance and, and other you know, she studied tech for a very long time, and uh, Varun Mather and, and Genevieve Freed, and we um, we were you know doing a, a kind of research effort around tech workers, and you know, we, you know I'm I'm involved in that, and it's a you know it's something to think about, and you know in one of the early meetings when we were convening this group and and sort of reading about this, you know that question came up, and it was you know surprisingly hard to answer, and I think you know it was it was almost excitingly hard to answer because suddenly it was like well you know we have to include the contractors right because your companies like google are you know it's more than half of the workforce is contract labor so sort of disposable precarious less um less compensated you know given fewer benefits et cetera, than than full time workers like i was and you know we, we would have to include contractors well you know then we would also maybe want to include you know the the click workers or the content moderators who are sort of hired offsite through third parties and and then would we want to include the people who are building the hardware and what about the folks whose lives are being mediated by this technology so people who you know may not be working for Google but who are working for a company that is using Google technology to monitor and control them and and you know otherwise sort of mediate their livelihood and you know it it began to sort of expand this sort of window of possibility for for solidarities that I really loved. And it was, you know, we are all sort of our, our work and our, our livelihoods are, are interpolated by these systems. We are seeing an increase in sort of worker control through tech, these worker monitoring platforms that are proliferating under COVID, which, you know, take a screenshot of your desktop every five seconds, log all your keystrokes, uh, are tracking your location to make sure you don't sneak out of your house for a, a breath of much needed fresh air, et cetera, right? Those are those are tech workers. Well, we would, you know, consider Amazon warehouse workers tech workers. We would consider the people who are piloting the ships that carry the the heavy metals necessary to build the chips, you know, could they be considered tech worker? And it it, you know, it's not to expand this term into meaninglessness or to apply it to people who don't self-identify with it, but it is, you know, thinking with this question does lead us to be able to map surprising solidarities. And I think that's going to be imperative if we want to, you know, recognize the way that, you know, being a worker has changed, the way that tech has, you know, in the case of gig work, in the case of you know, a lot of the tech enabled surveillance, et cetera, you know, the, the way in which it's, it's created a, you know, a lot more opportunity for deep precarity in work in, in labor and a lot less security with the sort of identity of worker, right? We don't go to the same shop floor every day, but, but we are tracked by the same couple companies and we may, you know, work for them or contribute to them in, in different and interesting ways. And, and what would it look like to then understand those connections, to map those connections and build sort of bonds of worker solidarity that aren't as rigidly defined by who signs my paycheck or, you know, which union dues do I pay, but, you know, more clearly defined by what types of leverage can we together exert on these power centers that at this point have more control of our lives in some sense than, you know, the governments of the the nation states we reside in. And there's been so much work. I mean, you're hinting at this, right? So much work done to convince people they're not workers. There's always this this sense of, you know, oh no, you're you're um, you know, this is reflected in the law. I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, you're not a an employee. You're an independent contractor. 
And then there's the kind of divisions between like the white collar workers, you know, so-called skilled labor, and then the tech workers you would find in Facebook's cafeteria or something like that. So there's all of these divisions, the way that all of the ways that solidarity is undermined. And it's it's both sort of by giving people these mental models that divide and and the physical spaces, like even if you work in the same company, you're not in the same rooms necessarily, or, you know, maybe you're working at a vast distance from each other because, you know, your employment is mediated by an app. So there's real obstacles. And it's so encouraging to see um, people devising creative ways to overcome those obstacles. And also just, you know, amazing to see American tech workers admit their workers <laughs> and 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 walk out and, and protest. So I wonder if you could just dig into maybe a few of the recent campaigns or just examples of this, you know, maybe some focusing on white collar workers. And then I think the stuff that's going on with um, rideshare drivers um, and the battle over AB5 in California is also just incredibly critical because it shows a kind of, A, it, it just shows how viciously tech companies will fight back, but it shows that, you know, if you can actually get certain key pieces of legislation passed that, you know, are robust and have teeth, that you can actually break some of these business models. I think, you know, if we want an inspiring model for what people who are told they're not workers, who are atomized and isolated for each other can do when they decide to organize, you can look at the the rideshare organizing, the, you know, Rideshare Drivers United, the Gig Workers Collective and, and others in, in California, but also, you know, nationally and globally in other, other ways, the way in which they've been able to organize over the past, you know, cu- couple, you know, many years, but couple years specifically leading up to AB5 as a kind of model for that, right? It's not easy to organize, you know, people who are in their own cars alone with a passenger and don't have access to sort of meet one another, right? It means going up in airport parking lots or sort of, you know, beginning to figure out ways to meet face to face. And it, you know, harkens back to some of the, you know, domestic worker organizing or the, the sharecropper organizing or other, you know, other organizing that was taking people who didn't, you know, weren't recognized as like capital L labor, and, you know, figuring out how to organize that anyway. And I think, you know, we are seeing tremendous success in California. And again, I would point to, you know, Vina Dubal and her work and how instrumental it's been in this. There's, um, there was a law that passed in 2019 called AB5. And, and essentially what this did is it required companies like Lyft and Uber and other sort of app-based gig companies, like Instacart, DoorDash, whatever, to classify their workers, so the drivers, the delivery people, as employees and not as independent contractors. Um, and this is something that Vina was very instrumental in helping push forward and, and helping draft some of it. Um, and for her trouble, she's now being targeted with, with targeted harassment that's pretty vicious, um, orchestrated by these companies' PR departments. But you know, this this law passed. It was it was monumental. There's now a huge struggle over enforcement. There's been you know millions and millions and millions of lobbying dollars poured into trying to you know prevent this law from going into effect. Because of course, Uber and Lyft in particular can't run their exploitative business models if they treat their drivers with sort of dignity. If they give them the stability of you know benefits and and predictable wages and and working hours, etc. So in a, a last ditch, ditch, let's hope it's last ditch effort to get around AB5 and the requirement to you know, treat workers with dignity and give them a share of the profits that you're hoarding. The These companies backed another law that's now on the ballot in California called Prop 22. And this is, you know, Prop 22 is just a, a loophole in the form of a law. It creates a carve out where 
app-based drivers will not be reclassified under AB5. So it lets Uber and Lyft and any other company doing app-based ride hailing off the hook for AB5. And there's a fierce campaign right now. There's a, the, the no on Prop 22 campaign, which a lot of drivers have organized around. A lot of a lot of the organizing heat is going into defeating this this law. Um, and that's, you know, that's the context in which we're seeing a, a hint of just how ugly this gets, how threatening this is to power with the pretty appalling harassment and targeting of Vina that's been, you know, conducted by sort of troll armies on Twitter that has, you know, engaged in deeply racist and misogynist threats, you know, that is meant to sort of intimidate and discourage people who would take a stand to, you know, get their money back from these companies from doing that. Um, but, you know, it's also a testament to how successful this has been, right? Um, because they don't, you know, expend that kind of energy uh, if they don't see this organizing as a threat. So, you know, that's um, that's one of the most inspiring examples. And, and it has been an example also over the years where we've seen you know, white collar Uber workers come out in support of these drivers. There was a really beautiful letter of solidarity that was written by, I, I believe, a group of white collar Uber engineers uh, with the drivers who were striking in 2019. Uh, and they were striking because in one day their wages had suddenly been cut 30 percent without explanation, but, you know, in a, in a way that was ruinous for many of their livelihoods. Um, so I think we're beginning to see where, you know, folks across the sort of class divide within uh, technology. And that divide is, of course, racialized because that's how um, racial capitalism works. But you're beginning to see people recognize their interdependence um, and, you know, explore different forms of solidarity. The AB5 fight is just so fascinating, though, as you as you said, because they are, really are pulling out all the stops. I mean, I think Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, I can't remember what other companies committed a war chest early on of over $100 million to fight it. It seems like it's grown because it really it, it does get at the heart of their their bullshit business model. I mean, you know, these companies, they're not even profitable even by exploiting and underpaying people. I mean, they're basically just these like Rube Goldberg machines for taking investment money and then funneling it to the founders or the people at the top. I mean, it's, it's just incredibly strange and a, an example of, of capitalism's irrational nature, that this is held up as like the business model of the future. I mean, it just, it absolutely makes no sense. And the thing that does make sense is saying, you know, hey, gig workers are workers and they deserve the basic protections, you know, that that any worker does. And and the fact that, you know, they, they can't even handle that. Um, and the fact that we have to fight, you know, to have workers be called workers kind of it, it shows where we're at. And just the the antics they're willing to go to. So there's a they're now threatening to pull out of California altogether until November, I think, is the date. And they wrote a letter to the mayor of San Diego, I believe. And it just made this sort of cranky toddler histrionics. And, you know, which you know, many on Twitter pointed out is like a capital strike and is illegal in many countries. But nonetheless, they're, you know, they're willing to withhold their services until they get what they want. So it's, you know, I think it does show just how broken these models are and how dependent they are on exploitation. Like this really doesn't work to make whoever the four guys at Uber who are rich, rich, if it's not exploiting hundreds of thousands of workers. And it's doing that by, you know, through these sort of myths of tech entrepreneurialism and innovation. It's doing that through regulatory arbitrage. It's doing that because we live in quasi-failed state in some sense with regards to worker protection and, and our social safety nets, et cetera. Um, and it's, you know, 
it just really resonates with like it's common sense that these folks should be treated as workers and given the you know affordances of workers and and the reaction we get tells us just how far away from that vision these business models are already kind of getting at the one of the final questions I have for you, which was, you know, how is big tech responding to pushback? So, you know, in, in one way, they're responding incredibly viciously. I spoke to one of the organizers of Rideshare Drivers United in Los Angeles in February. She was also telling me that she was being harassed by these agents of Uber and personally threatened and being smeared online. So there's that, you know, there's been a lot of documentation of the way Google and other tech firms are increasing their lobbying footprint in Washington, D.C. So, you know, building power on the inside in the good old fashioned way, you know, they're participating in a kind of revolving door, hiring, you know, folks from the beltway. Um, So that that's one response. Um, How else? How else is, is big tech responding so that we can be smarter in our organizing against them? I actually think the responses are pretty classic. You know, when when Google got, you know, I, fed up sounds too trivial a word, but, you know, there was a point at which, which when we were organizing at Google, they hired an anti-union consultancy. It was this firm called IRI. And they're sort of, you know, they have a janky website and they're clearly like web 1.0. They are not, you know, sophisticated or in any way, like terribly smart, but what they can do is come in and, you know, it's pretty classic, right? It's like you hurt the people who are organizing and you do that because you want to discourage other people from organizing. You figure out how to change policies such that you don't say you are discouraging or proscribing organizing behavior, um, but under the auspices of doing something else, you in fact are doing that. It was kind of one-on-one stuff and it, it sort of showed, you know, I think one that this organizing does work right? Even on companies that claim to sort of be different or exceptional or, you know, not just business as usual, um, which I don't think anyone believes that at this point, but, you know, it's still, it's still good to remember. And that the way they're going to react is not going to be terribly surprising, right? Of course, they're going to use the, the capabilities that exist now, which include sort of, you know, Twitter bots. And, you know, in our case, we were, you know, doxxed and targeted at one point, you know, there are, you know, there are, there are stakes to it, but it's, um, it's, it's pretty clear union busting. It's pretty clear sort of make an example to discourage organizing. And it I haven't seen it go much beyond that. Now, I do, you know, I do imagine a lot of these companies and I've heard rumors that they're doing sort of screening to try to, you know, screen out dissenters. They're limiting the ability, you know, at Google, they kind of crack down on a lot of the open discussion and message boards because that was a place where a lot of the political education was happening, um, which was of course, necessary to sort of build an organizing base. You know, I think I think they are struggling with this as well because they're you know they don't want to come right out and say you know hey we we are you know we would love to build weapons, <laughs> right? Because uh, there's a lot of people who aren't going to be happy with that. Um, at the same time, they want to get the money from building the weapons. So I you know I do anticipate a lot more subterfuge, sort of you know going through subcontractors, breaking companies up, doing sort of you know corporate architectures that allow them to to sort of split their identities in certain ways that will make it harder to um, to track those types of activities. You know, I think we're also, you know, you, you see Palantir, which is the company that that has those massive contracts with ICE and provides so much of that, you know, core infrastructure for ICE terror, has faced steady stream of organizing, like, you know, people picketing outside their, their um, offices across 2019. You know, all of their recruiting sessions at colleges are, are you know, being interrupted or, or many of them are being interrupted by student protests, et cetera. You know, they are now moving to Colorado from Silicon Valley. And, and there are many reasons for that. But, you know, clearly one of them is that 
it is not as easy for them to recruit in Silicon Valley in California as it, it once was. And it, it's you know likely they are hoping it will be easier to do that in Colorado. And you know we can also discuss the role that recruitment plays and, and how much power sort of students and prospects have, you know, students and prospects who have those elite technical skills in being able to shape the course of these companies because, you know, recruiting talent is a key competitive advantage to use, uh, to use business speak. Um, and it's something they pay a lot of attention to. Um, I do expect that these companies will continue to push back on the organizing. We have seen people fired. You know, I was one of the people who was pushed out of Google. I'm now at NYU and I'm happy there. But but I also think that we're going to continue to see organizing work and there's going to be, you know, part of the success of that organizing will be gauged by the dramatics of tech companies response. And, and I don't say that to make light of the pain that people go through when they are targeted or harmed. But um, just to say that I don't, you know, I think we need to expect it. I think we need to prepare for it. You know, I don't I don't anticipate that it will be surprising or terribly sophisticated. I think reading labor history, we're going to get a sense of the types of things they'll do and the types of things that we're lucky they don't have a private police force at this point to do. <laughs> right. Well, they'll also just slap the solidarity with Black Lives Matter on the homepage and hope that we um, believe that as much as we believe uh, the don't be uh, don't be evil motto. So that's it's definitely one of their responses as well. I'm thinking about how, you know, as we close out, how the solutions to the problems we're facing are framed. You know, there's a lively um, anti-monopoly discourse, for example, you know, which is something I, I think, you know, that's a start. I mean, the bigger a company is, um, the, the more political power it can wield. And and we've talked a lot of actually about the problem of, of bigness and consolidation here. But, you know, um, I'm not sure my definition of utopia is just three competing Googles, right? Or, you know, I mean, we already have a medley of uh, invisible data brokers, right? There's there's competition in that field. Um, and, you know, we're definitely not that much better off. It's just like you have to <laughs> you have to deal with all of these, um, you know, small small fish all trying to take a, a bite of your personal data. So I think there's limits to the anti-monopoly thing, you know, I feel like it's constantly being suggested that we should boycott, you know, Facebook or we should um, use uh, tools to ensure our personal privacy or, or that sort of privacy is the ultimate good we should be pushing for. Right. That the problem is really that our privacy is being violated. That also feels really unsatisfying to me. You know, if you could reflect a bit on sort of how you would frame the problems and the solutions. And, and we got to this in the beginning or you hinted at it. You know, are we talking about a kind of reformism? You know, can we have some regulation, you know, break up some monopolies and get where we need to be? Or do we need to take on a, an abolitionist framework? I think there's strong abolitionist arguments for a lot of these technologies. A lot of them just shouldn't exist. You know, if you are building technology that only exists to control workers uh, or to increase the power of a racist police state, like to me, I'm like, that technology shouldn't exist. And so I want you to reflect on that and sort of the, the big principles and frameworks that are guiding us. And then on the question, which matters, I think probably even more, uh, which is, you know, where is our leverage uh, moving forward? You know, what what are what do you think are the most strategic battles for people to to try to engage in and pay attention to? Yeah, I I love this question. And I agree that a lot of the framing is is tricky or doesn't seem to scope the problem in a way that would provide it an answer that I would be satisfied with, right? I, I'm not 
you know, I'm not eager to let open markets you know, dictate justice. So even five Amazons aren't going to be very, um, you know, satisfactory to, to me either. I think, you know, I also think calls for boycotts and other things just, again, it sort of reifies this individualistic notion of agency that just doesn't exist in the face of the way that these companies and these technologies have kind of colonized our daily life. You know, the, the ability not to be on Facebook is a privilege, right? And to go about your daily life without having to log in to check on your work or check on an event or or whatever it is. And in a lot of places, business is done over Facebook, right? Like that's the problem. The problem is not that people make dumb choices because they're so stupid. And if only they, you know, had the sort of righteous backbone that myself and my three privacy friends have, uh, you know, they would stay off these platforms and talk about being off these platforms constantly, right? <laughs> um, I, I think they generalize these harms in a ways that ignore you know, race, power, class, you know, who is actually being harmed by invasions of privacy. It's often not the, you know, the handful of, of white privacy engineers who are talking most about privacy. It's the people whose, you know, ability to get resources, the ability to see their children, the ability to get jobs is dictated by, you know, massive bureaucratic infrastructures of, of surveillance and means testing and control that have pre-existed technology, but that are, you know, magnified and amplified by technical systems that just sort of speed up those processes that amplify those processes that were made essentially you know, in, in the mold of those processes. So again, I don't think there is, you know, if we, if we look to just tweaking tech without looking to the histories and structures within which tech is operating, we're not going to fix the problem. And I think that, you know, that sort of gets it to the, like, what are the key battles, which is a question I, I struggle with given the, breadth of text proliferation, right? Is it education or is it, you know, is it criminal justice? You know, where where to start? And I think, you know, so the battles in which we're going to have to recognize technology as a significant issue to contend with, to organize around, are the same battles we're fighting for a livable future across the board. The battles to put care and well-being over accumulation to, you know, create a a future in which it, we're able to sort of curb the worst implications of the climate crisis. And I think there, you know, in, in all of these, there are fundamental questions about, you know, who gets resources, who gets to decide, who has decision-making power, who is able to live like a full and lovely life and who gets excluded from that. And, you know, these are questions that right now we are seeing infrastructures, technical infrastructures created by the elite to meet the profit incentives of the elite that are designed to make these decisions or to justify pre-existing decisions about who's worthy and who isn't, right? These technologies of classification, these technologies of social control, these technologies that claim to be intelligent, but in fact are just putting a sort of computational veneer on, you know, historical prejudices and, um, you know, sort of racialized exclusions. Um, so I think I don't think there is a battle in which we can ignore the presence of these technologies, but I also don't think there is a battle in which we segment technology out as its own issue. And and we have seen this, right? Like if we fix that, you know, if you kind of the bias in technology discourse that's pretty popular or has been popular for the last handful of years was looking at technology as having sort of a, a flaw that could be fixed, right? So the idea emerged that you could fix facial recognition by making sure it was able to recognize people with all skin tones, right? Because, you know, research emerged that shows that facial recognition was in fact encoding 
um, racist misrecognitions? And the answer was, well, you know, we're going to fix it by making sure it recognizes everyone. You know, that is a tech-centric answer to that question that avoids the fact that that technology is being used by police, right? It's being used by landlords. It's not going to be used, you know, by us. It's not for us. And maybe the right to refuse is something we should be fighting for, um, not simply the right to be kind of included in a vision we had no authorship in to begin with. And that's, you know, that's where I really resonate with the abolitionist discourse on these sort of dismantling and the building happen to happen at the same time, um, needing to be sort of co-constitute a new reality. We're not just, you know, knocking down tech. We're also saying, what do we want, right? What types of lives do we want to live? Um, how do we want to make these decisions in the future? 100%. We don't want a world where the technology discriminates fairly against people in order to amass huge fortunes for some, right? That colorblind exploitation of, of poor people is not the socialist horizon for technology. Have you, have you got any closing thoughts on that? What would the internet look like under a different political economic paradigm? I mean, can you even begin to imagine it? Or are our imaginations limited by the fact that this is all that we've known? I'll try to answer this question, but I, I do think my imagination might be a little limited by it. And I think where I get hung up on this is this sort of recognizing the limitations of computation itself and the way in which you know, the history of computation has been forged by the same forces we are discussing now, the same structural forces, the same, you know, who got to determine what computers do and, and you know, what they served and how they operated was, again, it's, it's some of the same characters we're being, we're becoming familiar with during the show. And I think if there were an internet that was sort of just and, and collective, we would need to pay a lot more attention to how are the practices of sort of constructing the data and the information and the, you know, air quotes content that appear on that internet constituted? Because, you know, how do we determine, you know, what those things are? Who gets who gets to do that? Because it, at, at this point, you know, the infrastructures are designed, are, you know, function are sort of constituted through a logic that there is a sort of, you know, there is a system that exists and it gathers data, it reflects data. It's sort of this, um, you know, it, it is effectively the arbiter of that. Right. It, it determines how data is created, how information is created. It determines what to do with that. And now there could be sort of collective processes around that. But it is like it encodes a form of sort of power and control in the fundamental constitutive logics of how it works that I think we need to be really careful with. Right. It is it is fundamentally sort of a technology of classification. It is a technology that has been built around logics of scale and scale is is a fundamentally flattening concept, right? If you're going to assume that, you know, everyone is is more or less the same and the data you take from everyone can be more or less, you know, constituted similarly, you have made a decision that has a lot of power, right? And by you, I'm thinking about, you know, the person who designs whatever the system is, right? You have made a determination on behalf of all of those people, right? And so, you know, I'm not saying that that is always bad and I don't want to get into the realm of abstractions where we're just sort of paralyzed. But I do think taking these sort of fundamental modalities of classification and control and the way in which sort of the desire to scale from sort of one set of logics across billions of homogeneous human beings uh, as a sort of starting point to understand how these systems are have been kind of designed and constructed and, and their sort of core functioning. Like we need to take that 
very seriously before we think about sort of repurposing some of those logics uh, toward liberatory ends. I think that's a fantastic warning. This has been such a good conversation. I want to advise anyone who's interested in keeping up with with these debates to to follow you on Twitter. That's an endorsement of Meredith mm-hmm. and not Twitter. Meredith Whittaker, thank you so much for joining me on The Dig. Thank you so much, Astra. It's been a real delight. Meredith Whitaker is a research professor at New York University, co-founder and co-director of the AI Now Institute, and a core organizer of the Google Walkouts. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, a union for debtors. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production develops technology— and the combining together of various processes into a social whole, only by sapping the original sources of all wealth, the soil, and the laborer. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. We have every episode ever done on The Dig, organized by guest and by topic. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really does that is you telling your friends, family, total strangers about the show, why you love it, why they should listen to it. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge.